Just thinking about that song, Jesus wore a crown of thorns on his brow, and one day we'll wear a glittering crown in heaven and worship him for what he's done for us. And so we think about the great love of our Savior for us. And if you're a Christian this morning, that means that your aim in life is to be like this Jesus. Your goal, your desire, your aim is to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Now there's a few ways that we could argue this, but I think if you're a Christian here this morning, you already kind of know that you want to be like Jesus. You've seen his beauty and his holiness. You've tasted of his goodness and you want to be like him. I think there's something about our new nature as a born-again person that wants to glorify God and wants to honor him. And we know that the way to do that is to be like Jesus Christ. But let's just take a few minutes this morning as we kind of are going to slowly ease our way towards our text. We'll take a few minutes And we just want to argue a little bit um, that being like Jesus is our goal. Now, I'm sure there's many arguments and many reasons why the goal of a believer is to be like Jesus. And one of the first that comes to mind for me is that the Christian is a disciple. And we're, we're kind of thinking here through the book of Matthew a little bit. A Christian is a disciple, according to Matthew's gospel. In fact, the name Christian was something that others really came up with to describe Jesus' disciples. Jesus didn't call his disciples Christians. He didn't call them uh, his followers Christians. He called them disciples. And after the resurrection, certain people were trying to describe these followers of Jesus, who is called the Christ, and they said, let's Let's call them Christians. And the name stuck. And, and if you want, you could see that in Acts eleven twenty five. It says in verse 25 and 26 that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the Christians were, the, sorry, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so the Gentiles in Antioch called the disciples Christians, followers of Christ. The word disciple is familiar to us from our study of Matthew. Matthew speaks about followers and disciples of Jesus. A disciple was somebody who learned from a teacher. A disciple in Jesus' day would would live with or live near the teacher And they would follow them from place to place and observe their character and their teaching and their business. And the whole goal of this discipleship was to become like the master. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 24, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And again, that's the goal of discipleship, becoming like Jesus, who is our teacher and our master. In Matthew chapter 9, and uh, you know, I think we could turn there if you wanted to. Matthew 9 describes the calling of Matthew, who wrote the gospel of Matthew. And in verse 9, it says there, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus also called Peter and Andrew and James and John with the same words. And that's in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
to follow there to, or to follow me means to follow as a disciple. And again, the goal of discipleship is to become like the master in everything. So if you are a disciple of Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. By definition, your aim is to become like Jesus. And we could say conversely, we could kind of flip it around and say, if your aim is not to become like Jesus, by definition, you are not a Christian. You are not a follower of him. You are not a disciple. Now, another way to argue that this whole thing is to think about the nature of salvation itself. And and again, what are we arguing here? We're arguing that, that a Christian is somebody who wants to become like Jesus. And we can argue here from the the whole nature of salvation. Salvation results in one becoming a disciple. And that could be the end of the argument right there. If you are saved, you become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that really takes us back where we started. But we could go deeper on this idea of salvation because salvation involves a purchase. We have been bought. And the payment was the blood of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it says there that we were ransomed. And that means we were freed by the payment of a price. And we didn't pay that price. Jesus paid that price. The text there says that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians sixteen nineteen and 20 asks, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We were purchased for a reason. We were purchased to glorify God. According to Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us. Another kind of purchase word, he gave himself for us to redeem us. Again, let me just read Titus 2.14. It says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so he redeemed us from, he redeemed us from all lawlessness and he redeemed us to this purity to purify us for himself. In Ephesians 2.10, it says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we're not only bought, we've been, we've been made, we've been created new in Christ Jesus, and there's a union between us and Christ, and the purpose of that union is that we were created in him so that we would be made more like him. Now, I want to take you to two of my favorite places to show that the purpose of, of our salvation was to make us like, like Christ. And, and the first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sure we've looked at this uh, many times before, but 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Paul says there, for the love of Christ controls us. The, the love that Christ has shown in our salvation, that really, that really motivates and, and shapes everything that Paul does. And he says, it's because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul concluded that since Jesus died, and and since Jesus died for him, then he also died. And so Jesus died, therefore we died. And the purpose of Jesus dying, according to the text there, is so that we might live for him. The love of Christ for us in our salvation crucifies our old life and causes us to live for him. And the best way to live for him, again, is to be like him. Well, let's go to another one there. There's the the purpose of our salvation according to 2 Corinthians 5. Let's go over to Romans 8. 
And we want to look at verse 29, but we can't look at verse 29 without starting in verse 28. And so Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so the explanation there in verse 29 tells us why God works all things together for good. It's because he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so us who love God, or because we've been saved, we have this love for God, and us who have been called according to his purpose, God has purposed, in our salvation to make us like His Son. And that's God's design for us. All things, whether those things are good or whether those things are bad, they work together for the good of conforming us to be like Jesus Christ, God's Son. And so follow this then. God's purpose in our salvation is to make us like Christ. And our purpose as disciples as saved people is to become like Christ by learning about him and emulating him, copying him, imitating him. And we could even do one more here as we think about this purpose of ours. My purpose as a pastor is to become like Christ myself in order to set an example for you, but also my purpose is to see you made like Christ. And to see that, let's go to the book of Colossians and look at Colossians 1.28. This is our church's theme verse. It's on the banner when you walk in in the morning. Uh, Colossians 1.28, Paul is speaking about this mystery, and the mystery is Christ in you in verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says in verse 28, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so that was Paul's ministry to proclaim him, proclaiming Jesus Christ. And that involved both warning and teaching, admonishment and instruction. And the goal was to present those that he ministered to complete in Christ, mature. And in verse 29, he acknowledges that God and Christ were the ones that were really working in him towards that same goal. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And so it's important for us to realize that our goal and the minister's goal and God's goal is to make us who believe in his son to make us like his son. And we began to see that already last week in Matthew chapter 20. And if you go back there, let's go back to Matthew in our context. Matthew 20, I'll start reading in verse 26. He says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what we're kind of noticing there is that even as we're to serve and, um, and to be slaves to one another, we're to, we're to kind of give ourselves for one another in the same way, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so we're to be like Christ in the way that he came to serve and to give his life for, for us. And, and even, and we are to even, um, we are to be even as he was in giving our lives for one another. Now, in the next verses, 29 to 34, we get to, to see the way the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, served others. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see how Christ served others. And we're going to learn from him. We're going to have an opportunity to kind of see him and, and learn what he was like. And it's something that we're to copy. He's an example for us. And his life becomes an example of how we also are to live. 
And our text today shows us Jesus' concern for others and his selfless way. It shows us his love for others. It shows us his compassion. And so let's read it, starting in verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. As I said, this text will help us follow Christ. And these verses begin and end with a mention of following him. In verse 29, a great crowd followed him. And then again in verse 34, immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. And we'll see a contrast in this text between the crowd and how they treat the blind men and Jesus and how he treats the blind men. The crowd rebukes the men. Jesus heals them. The men also become something of an example then to everyone who would come to Jesus for salvation. You see, they would not be silenced or discouraged until Jesus had mercy on them. And so the persistence of the man and the compassion of the Lord meet together. And the whole thing becomes an encouragement to anyone who would come to Jesus Christ for mercy. And we're going to highlight the contrast between Jesus and the crowd as we kind of look at this text under two headings this morning. And we're going to see then, first of all, we're going to see the uncaring crowd in verses 29 to 31. And then secondly, we're going to see the sympathetic Savior in verses 32 to 34. Or we could call this second one, we could call it the compassionate king. I think I called this sermon following the compassionate king. And so number two could either be the sympathetic Savior or the compassionate king. But first of all, let's look. Number one, we'll see the uncaring crowd. Again, in verses 29 to 31, the uncaring crowd. And as we look at these verses, we do well to remember here that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And he knows what's going to happen to him when he arrives. And we we saw that most recently in verses 17 and 18 of the same chapter. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, it says, and he took the twelve aside Remember, there was a a crowd also going up to Jerusalem for the Passover at that time. And so he took the 12 aside and he said to them, verse 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Verse 19, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. In our text, verse 29, Jesus and his disciples are near Jericho. They're near Jericho. And Jericho is very near the Jordan River, only 15 miles or 24 kilometers from Jerusalem. And so they're close to the destination. Jesus is close to his condemnation and death. And the Jews would typically avoid Samaria. So to go from Galilee to Jerusalem, instead of just going straight south... They would first go east and they would cross the Jordan kind of near Galilee. And then they would go south in Gentile territory and then they would cross back over the Jordan and they would do so near Jericho. And so they, the, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They, the Samaritans were compromisers in their eyes. They had intermarried with Gentiles and they didn't keep the law properly, although they claimed to follow the God of the Bible. And so the Jews didn't like them, and so they would rather go through Gentile country, Gentile territory, and kind of make the route that way. And that's why there's this great crowd coming from Galilee, and they're now in Jericho. And so there were many people on the road with Jesus and his disciples because the feast of Passover was approaching, and devout Jews would make the trip to Jerusalem 
in order to celebrate. And so you've got this great crowd of people and they're going to a celebration. They're going to a feast. They're going to the Passover. And with them, you've got Jesus who is the Passover sacrifice and he's going to his death. And so you can kind of get the picture of this happy crowd. And I don't know how Jesus was in those moments, but I would be thinking about what was going to happen to me in Jerusalem. And this great crowd would have largely been Galileans and they were going to the feast and they will have known his works. They would have known his power. They had heard about him. Remember that all of Galilee knew about his miraculous power and his healing ability. And they're following him according to our text, but they're, they're not following him in the sense that they've believed in him or following him in the sense that they've become disciples. They're just going to Jerusalem. But before we go further here into our text, we should talk about one other thing. Matthew has in verse 29, and as they went out of Jericho. Mark says it this way. He says, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, and then we meet the blind men. But Luke says this. It says, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And so Matthew and Mark say that Jesus was leaving Jericho. Luke says, as he drew near to Jericho. And so what do we make of this? Now Luke's saying, we, and we should acknowledge this, Luke's saying could simply mean that Jesus was near. Not that he was drawing near, but that he, he was just near Jericho when this happened. But another explanation of this is that at the time, there was actually two Jerichos. There was the original city that that Joshua had conquered and that was rebuilt. And about a mile, mile further up the road, there was another Jericho, a new Jericho that was built by Herod. And it was built kind of around Herod's winter palace. And so it could be that Matthew and Mark are referring to the older biblical site of Jericho, while Luke, the Gentile, is referring to the Herodian Jericho. So that what what happens in our text is actually happening in between the two Jerichos. But however it happened, one thing that I think we need to acknowledge as believers in biblical inerrancy and that this is God's inspired word is that however it happened, if we knew all the details, we would be able to say in one sense that Jesus was leaving Jericho, but in another maybe slightly different sense, we'd be able to say that Jesus was also drawing near to Jericho. However, we work that out. And so we've got this great crowd following Jesus, and it would seem that they're heading towards Jerusalem now from Jericho. And again, the distance is only 15 miles, but the climb to Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet. And so it's a a fairly steep walk, a, a hilly walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. And verse 30 of our text now says, And behold, There were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now Mark and Luke here focus on only one of the men, and Mark tells us even his name was Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus we call him. They also tell us that he was a beggar or that he was begging. And as a blind man, there would be really no way to provide for oneself in that time. And so they would just sit beside a road and beg for food or money to buy food. And the road to Jericho at Passover would be a great place to do that because there are so many people heading to Jerusalem. And so it's not surprising to see multiple beggars and even multiple blind beggars along that road. But what is surprising is their knowledge of who Jesus is. They had heard that Jesus was passing by and they know that he is Lord and they know that he is son of David. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us how they came to know this. Jesus was a, a famous, uh, famous as a healer and a miracle worker. And perhaps they had heard stories of, of other people that Jesus had healed. The word that they use here three times in our text, Lord, sometimes just merely refers to a a respectful form of address to a, a superior. But here in combination with son of David, I, I think it has this fuller sense of master, Lord, 
or even of God in flesh. Remember, this is the Greek word kurios, which was used for Yahweh in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so this word often means that, that Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh, that he is God. Son of David, they call him, is a, of course a messianic title. It's a recognition that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the rightful heir of David's throne. Jesus is the king who would establish the kingdom. Now, some manuscripts in verse 30 omit the word Lord. And they have, instead, they have either nothing or they have Jesus there instead. Same thing in verse 31. Some manuscripts don't have the word Lord or they have it in a different place in the text. But it seems fairly likely that the word Lord belongs both in verse 30 and 31. But even if it doesn't belong there, all of the manuscripts have the word Lord in verse 33 when the men say to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now, if the word Lord is there in the original manuscripts, we've got quite a bit of repetition here. And so in verse 30, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them in verse 31, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And then again in verse 33, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And so there's this emphasis on Jesus as Lord and Son of David and his power to open eyes. And so the blind man can see who Jesus is, but in only a few days in Jerusalem, the crowd will not see him because they are spiritually blind. And so the blind men know a lot about Jesus, and they're seeing more than most of Israel. But the crowd doesn't want the noise. They don't really care about these beggars or about the fact that they're blind. They don't seem to care or want Jesus to heal these men. They just want to go about their journey in peace. And when the men cry out for mercy, the crowd rebukes them. The ESV, or the, sorry, the Legacy Standard Bible says, sternly told them. And that word there to rebuke or to, to tell sternly, it means to express a strong disapproval of someone. And so the crowd is not liking these men. And, and so the idea there is that they rebuke them, they reprove them, they, they speak seriously to them, they, they warn them. And so the crowd doesn't like these men crying out and, and they let them know. And they rebuked them, and the purpose of the rebuke was to silence them, to keep them silent. <clears throat> and this really shows us the world's way of thinking. See, Jesus had taught his disciples to receive the least people in his name. Again, in Matthew 18 and verse 4, Jesus said, Whoever humbles himself like this child, remember the child was in their midst at that time, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name <clears throat> receives me. Again, in Matthew 18 and verse 10, Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. But the crowd rebuking these blind men maybe reminds us of Jesus' disciples in chapter 19 rebuking the parents who brought the children to Jesus for prayer. Remember in Matthew 19, 13, it says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And what we begin to see then is the difference between Jesus and his disciples and between Jesus and the world. Jesus wants us to receive the lowly and the lost. He cares about children and about beggars. And his disciples are, are being taught these lessons, but the, the crowd is uncaring. The crowd is unsympathetic and almost hostile towards these blind men, rebuking them, telling them to be silent and stop calling out for mercy. But these men, they would not be deterred. They were not shamed 
into silence. And instead, they called out all the more. In verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The word that they use, have mercy, means to be greatly concerned about someone in need. And so they're asking for the Lord to be concerned about their need. Be concerned, Lord. Have mercy. Show compassion. And they're mostly asking here for physical sight. But what we'll see at the end in verse 34 is that they became followers of Jesus. And it would seem that they they did so not just in the sense like the crowd that they, they followed him to Jerusalem, but I think in the full sense of discipleship. In the parallel passages of Mark 10 and Luke 18, Jesus says to them, go your way, your faith has made you well. And that could literally be translated, your faith has saved you. And most often when Jesus says that, your faith has saved you, not only are these people healed, but they are believers. They are redeemed. They are saved. And so these men then become an example to all who would recognize their need for mercy from Jesus Christ. If you recognize your need for mercy of Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning and you recognize that you are a sinner in need of God's grace then follow the example of these men and do not allow the crowd on the broad road that leads to destruction to silence your calls for salvation and mercy. See, the crowd was following Jesus, but they weren't following Him truly. And they weren't following Him in a saving way. They wanted peace. They wanted quiet. They just, they just wanted to be left alone. They didn't want anything to disrupt their hypocritical worship, if you think about it this way. They were on their way to worship God. But when someone began to seek God earnestly and to seek God truly, it disrupted them and they didn't like it. And religious crowds are very much the same today. They don't like anything that breaks the peace and quiet of their religious practice. And it disturbs their false sense of peace when someone gets serious about their need of salvation or their need of mercy. Or when they get serious about following Jesus Christ and living for His sake and glorifying Him in the world. And so don't let the crowd pressure you into silence. Be like these blind men who could spiritually see. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Seek Jesus Christ and seek the salvation that's in Him alone. And seek Him until you're a true follower of Jesus Christ who's being conformed into His image. And so that's the uncaring crowd. And that brings us then to the second heading for this morning. We'll see how Jesus responds to the situation and we can call this again the compassionate king or the sympathetic savior. And what we're going to see is Jesus' compassion and his sympathy and his love. Again, the sympathetic savior, verses 32 to 34. Look at verse 32 to start and stopping. Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus, he, he stopped and he, and he stood still. And, and of itself, it's, it's really not a big deal. He, he stopped. But when we remember his mission and when we remember that he was going to Jerusalem to die, it becomes remarkable. See, if there was ever a time to be inattentive to the requests of others, this was it. If there was ever a time uh, to be aloof, or if there was ever a time to be focused on himself and on his own needs, this was it. You know, I don't know about you, but I can easily get lost in my own thoughts over things much less important, much less serious. Jesus was on his way to his execution. And yet he stopped to show mercy to really the very lowest in society. He stopped to show mercy to a blind beggar on the side of the road. Jesus stopped and he called the men. And in verse 32, he says, what do you want me to do for you. 
And he draws out their request. And you can imagine in in the midst of a crowd that's kind of moving along the road and there's this great many people, you can imagine that that even anyone stopping along the way would would kind of begin to, to make the crowd pile up. And the crowd's kind of busy rebuking these men and, and Jesus now stops and, and calls them and the men are, are brought to him, assumedly. And so there's now a, a crowd of, of bystanders watching this scene and Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And verse 33, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And in verse 34, and, in, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. Now this word in pity in the ESV translated that way, in pity, we've seen this now five times in the book of Matthew. And I think it's an important word to Matthew. Matthew 9 and verse 36, I'm just going to show you this word a few times. Matthew 9, 36 When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. That's our word there. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We saw it again in Matthew 14, in verses 13 and 14. Matthew 14, 13 says, Now when he heard this, when Jesus heard this, and what he had heard in the context was that John the Baptist was killed. And so Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Again, another similar situation. John the Baptist's death kind of foreshadows Jesus' own death and crucifixion and what's going to happen to him. And so he goes to be by himself, but the crowd comes and he has compassion on the crowd, and instead of continuing to try to be by himself, he heals them and has mercy on them. Again, in Matthew 15 and verse 32, when Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And so in compassion, Jesus multiplied bread and fed I think that's the 4,000 in Matthew 15. And then we saw it a a fourth time in Matthew 18 and verse 27 in the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in that parable, the king, it says, out of pity for him, out of pity for the debtor who owed the 10,000 talents, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And so there's this pity and compassion of Jesus. And in the parable, anyways, Jesus is really the king that has mercy on on us and forgives our sin. Now the structure of Matthew 18.27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him. It's very similar to what we have in our text In verse 34, in pity, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. And I'm not going to kill you with the grammatical terms here, but the idea of the construction here is that when Jesus touched their eyes, at that moment and and in in that process, he was feeling compassion. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it here that moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And so the idea is that as Jesus is doing the one thing of touching their eyes, there's this emotion of, of compassion, of, of pity for these, for these men. Another commentator translates this word in, in at least in numerous places that we just looked at, his heart went out. And I think that kind of brings the idea in English. His, his heart goes out to these people. And he has a feeling of concern for these people. And he touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. Now, when it says in the ESV recovered their sight, it it makes it sound like they, they once 
could have been seeing people, but then they went blind. But the word can mean simply to receive sight. We don't know if they could see before. It could be that they did, and now they've, they've recovered it. But, but more likely, these were people who were blind, and now they're receiving sight for the first time. But whether they could see before or not, we, we don't really know. But what we do know is that they once were blind. At one point, they were blind, but now they see. And immediately, according to our text, immediately they were healed. And Matthew doesn't use that word as often as Mark. And so the idea of this word is, is an instantaneous healing. And both of these men now could see. Now this is going to be Jesus' last public miracle in, in front of kind of the, the whole crowds. He's going to do some things in the, in the middle of the night in Gethsemane and, and whatnot, but this is his last public miracle. This is one more healing, one last bit of evidence for Israel that Jesus is the Messiah. And you'll remember that recovery of sight for the blind was what Isaiah had prophesied that would be one of the key marks of the Messiah. Isaiah 35 verses 4 to 6 kind of speaks about this. Verse 4 says that God will come. Verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Again, that's Isaiah 35 and 36. And you remember in Matthew chapter 11 when John the Baptist needed some confirmation that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember, John was beginning to doubt in prison. Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus pointed him to those scriptures to Isaiah 35. When he said in Matthew 11 verses 4 to 6, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Again, that was a combination of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And so this miracle is a final proof that Jesus is the Christ. And perhaps it contributed to what we're going to see next time as we come back to Matthew chapter 21 in two weeks. If you look at verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so the crowd, as they come into Jerusalem, are going to kind of pick up the, the proclamation of the blind man and they're going to say, Hosanna to the Son of David. And it's not going to be many days from the day that we're in in Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34. <clears throat> but that same crowd that welcomed him would soon turn on him. And so we see in Matthew 27, 15 that, that they're going to ask for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. And the chief priests and the elders are going to persuade the crowd in Matthew 7, 27 verse 20 to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And Pilate doesn't want to do it and, and, he, and he says, well, what should I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? And the crowd said, and it says in verse 22, they all said, let him be crucified. And Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. <clears throat> so another reason to avoid following a crowd is that a crowd is easily persuaded this way or that way. They're easily persuaded to cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David, but they really don't understand what they're talking about. And in a few days after that, they're easily persuaded to do evil and have the Son of God 
crucified. The same crowd that witnessed this miracle of healing and welcomed Jesus as son of David then said, let him be crucified. And so again, following a crowd is not the way of genuine salvation. We must come to Jesus despite the crowd or or whether others will come or not. We must come to Jesus even if nobody else will come to Jesus. And Jesus will have us stand alone for Him if necessary. But let's come back now and let's come back to the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ and remember that He stops And he's moved with compassion and he heals these two blind men. And he has mercy on them and he heals them and he saves these men. Now as we think about ourselves here, we're not necessarily to expect Jesus to heal every sick person in this age. Those were signs that were tied to the nearness of the kingdom. They were signs that that showed that Jesus was the Messiah and that the apostles were his true representatives. And so we don't expect to see these kind of miracles again until the millennial kingdom, until it is near and we'll see healing and long life and other miracles once again. But one thing that we can be sure of today is that that Jesus is gracious and compassionate. And He's faithful and a, a merciful high priest. And if we call to Him asking for mercy, He hears us. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so if we call out to mercy, if we come to Him, He's not too busy. He's not too preoccupied with the heavenly things that He's about. If we call for mercy, He will have compassion on us. And we aren't too lowly, we aren't too sinful to be noticed by Him because He notices the lowest of all. He He cares about the lowest and instructs His people to come and, and, and minister to the lowest and notice them and be like Him in that way. In fact, Jesus Christ even has a special charge from His Father to bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted again, Isaiah 61 and verse 1. And so if we recognize our need and we call to Him, He promises to answer. In Romans 10 and verse 11, it says that the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. And again in verse 13, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then call on the Lord like these blind men and say, Son of God, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus is still alive. He is resurrected and He's at the right hand of the Father and He is able to hear your prayer if you call. And He is Lord and King of this world and of this universe and He will have mercy on you. He will have compassion on you. He died to pay the penalty for sinners. And He loves to save sinners. He loves it when we call and He loves to transform us and make us like Himself so that He can bring His Father glory through our salvation. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, call on Jesus Christ and He will save you. And if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have trusted in Him and in Him alone for your salvation, then recognize this morning that we are called to follow His example. We are called to have compassion. We're called to stop for those in need. In our Scripture reading this morning, we read in John 13.34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we're to model our lives after the pattern that we have in the Lord Jesus. We're to love as He loved and we're to have compassion for those around us. We began this morning by saying that the goal of our discipleship is to be like Christ. We're seeking to learn Him and to become like Him. And the preaching of Christ also is meant to conform us 
to Him, as Paul said, we proclaim Him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And also God is working in us by His Holy Spirit to transform us into the image of His Son. And so we are seeking to be like Christ and the the ministry of the Word is seeking to make us like Christ and God Himself is working in our lives to make us like the Christ that we saw in our passage today. Again, Jesus says, by this, by this love, we'll all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Grace Bible Fellowship, I, I think we have this love for one another. I think we do well in this area, but I would be like Paul and I would, as he said to the Thessalonians, I would say to you, this is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And so our goal is to abound in this love and in this compassion. And again, as we do this, we will be recognized as true disciples of Jesus Christ and we will bring glory to God. Well, let's pray. Father, we uh, recognize in this, we recognize our weakness. We recognize our sin. That, that we often are like the crowd, uncompassionate, uncaring, not even noticing the needs of those around us. But Father, we want to be like Christ. We want to love as He loved. We want to be transformed into the image of Your Son. And so we just pray that You would work in our hearts, that even this picture of Christ that we've seen today from Your Word would, would be used by your, by your Holy Spirit to work in us, to conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Help us to abound in these things and to love one another to the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.